Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So as you know, my podcast is mostly short form. I bring things to street level, half documentation, and by documentation, me sitting on a toilet talking into my phone. And then the other half, uh, some science, some psychobabble, things I learned in therapy school, tips, tools, mindset, etc. But now I'm introducing what I call the Angry Therapist Presents series. And these series are uh, from other experts, people that I admire and learn have learned from, um, doing what they do best, which is going to be more long form. So if I'm in a shark glass, series is in a wine glass. And today, I want to present to you friend and trauma expert, Dr. MC McDonald. She's dedicated her life to trauma. And she has a new book called Unbroken. You should go pick it up. This is the trauma tapes. And these are real stories as she dissects the trauma through her lens She's a university teacher, she's a coach, she's an author, she's got so much to offer. You're going to get so much out of the next eight episodes, and we're going to release these once a week. Enjoy the trauma tapes. Okay, so we are going to uh, name this one um, Simple Versus Complex. Okay, this letter is from um, Curious in Colorado, and they say, Dear Trauma Tapes, I didn't think I had trauma, but the older I get and the more research I do, the more resounding my yes, I have trauma voice becomes. When you define trauma as being an unbearable effect that finds no relational home, I can't help but think about the experience of my mother's death. My mom was a single mother raising three girls, recovering from her own trauma and addictions. I was a young woman working my way towards a master's degree in counseling when my mother began her 10-year slide towards death. It began as my mother frequently telling us she was just too tired to go to the store. Can we please go for her? After a couple of months, we began to realize that she really hadn't left the house. And really, how tired could she be? The relationships between us began to suffer. It had never been good. But now we were young women trying to understand why our mother needed us to care for her and couldn't show up for things like graduations, weddings, and babies. It didn't make sense, and she refused to see a doctor. For 10 years, there were fights, trying to make sense of why our mom couldn't participate in our world, yet wanted us to provide the world to her. There were no answers, and nobody could relate. Eventually, I had a career as a school counselor, could pay my own bills, and support my mom and sisters by giving all I ever could to help support them. All I ever wanted was for my mom to be okay, to see me and to be proud of me. But instead, the more I gave, the more she slipped away. Our holidays were stressful. We couldn't come together to celebrate because it was too overwhelming for her. But we couldn't have our own celebrations because somebody had to be there to take care of her. The last time she called me was to tell me about how angry she was at my 16-year-old sister, who was too busy with school, work, and a new baby to go get her the food she was craving. I became frustrated and yelled at her, telling her that my sister was doing her best and why couldn't she see that? Little did I know that was the last time I would receive a call from my mom. From that point, 
her health started to decline significantly. I was receiving calls from my sister who lived across the street from my mother that she was afraid she would find my mom dead on her couch. I was playing the mother role now to both my sisters and my mother. She still refused to get help, saying she just had a cold and was tired. We convinced her to have a doctor come to the house she lied and said they came while we were gone. The doctor told us she canceled for the third time. I called social services, but they said she was an adult. She could refuse help. I called the police. I didn't know what to do if she did die. It wasn't an emergency. We knew it was coming. So did I call 911? I was afraid if they came, they would blame us for starving her. I called hospice. They wouldn't help because she didn't have a medical record. There was nobody to talk to who would understand. I was alone, scared. And the, mo and the most knowledgeable still with no answers. Eventually, my youngest sister, then living in a completely different part of the country, called hospice enough times, begging them to please just do a home visit, that they agreed. My mother agreed to allow them in. That was on a Monday. They did an external physical exam, told us, yes, indeed, she was sick and dying, and that she had a few weeks to months to live. They gave her oxygen and a dose of hope. I remember her telling us that she could finally breathe and was going to get better. They gave her a quarter of a child's dose of morphine and she finally rested. On Sunday, she passed away. My two sisters, myself and my aunt, loving her and holding her hands on the couch she had spent the last year on, seven days after we finally got help. I remember thinking there just had to be someone in the world who could understand. Whose mother just slipped away, refusing help? The relationship I had hoped for my entire life was gone. And there was no human on earth who could say to me, oh, I get it. I've been there and you will be okay. When the coroner came to take my mom's body away, my sisters and I had drastically different reactions. My youngest sister fell to the floor crying. My middle sister vomited. And I had a big grin on my face from the relief I felt of all the pain being over. We were ready to begin again. I'm sure I was in shock. I have spent the last 10 years rebuilding but I am not sure I ever let myself completely break. After my mother's death, my sisters and I all moved to the same town. I bought a house, got married, had children, changed careers, kept myself busy with personal growth. I participated in a grief group for people who lost their parents. It seemed like the right thing to do so I could get past my grief and heal, but it really wasn't the right space. Nobody lost their mother the way I had. I've rebuilt, I've celebrated, I've found ways to honor my mom. I did all the next right things. So why is it that now, more than 10 years later, I feel the grief coming back? I feel the fear of sickness, mental illness, judgment of my own parenting. It's also paralyzing as a parent. I hear myself say and do things my mother would have said and done, and I spiral into an anxiety attack. I fear every argument with my children, wondering if I'm screwing them up. I fear every time I feel like I can relate to my mom. Is this a result of trauma more than 10 years later, just now surfacing? Even though I've tried to do all the right things to move on in my life, can trauma resurface in a new way, even after all the post-traumatic growth I've had? How much healing is enough? Sincerely, Curious in Colorado. Mm. That's tough. That's so tough. Um, thank you for writing that. That's a hard story to share, I would imagine. Yeah. What do you, do you have any initial thoughts? Well, that it's, that it is very difficult when um, you feel like no one understands mm -hmm. that, you know, that no one has, I, I mean, that sounds like a 10 year prolonged suicide to me in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. um, and that what that has done to um, the letter writer and her sisters has to be unbearable yeah. on some level to live in that kind of stress yeah. for that long yeah. um, is okay. tough. And, and yeah. to feel like 
there's no one out there that can kind of understand what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you, if you try to explain it and then you don't get the reaction you're hoping for, it's really easy to kind of shut down. Yeah, absolutely. And feel alone. Mm-hmm. So totally. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we all become more well-versed in trauma because um, I think a big part of, I mean, so a big part of what a trauma is, the central wound is not having this relational home where you can have somebody resonate with your experience and attune to you and understand what you're going through, you know, providing Mm -hmm. that space for you to process. Um, And I think so often we turn away because we think we have to have gone through something in order to understand what it's like. And that's simply not true. And -hmm. the research bears that out as well. Um, And I think in, in really interesting ways, So um, I want to talk about the definition of trauma that we always use here and also just a couple of other distinctions, but I think my just general, you know, um, the first thing that I want to say is, you know, can trauma resurface like this? And absolutely, especially because I think what you're dealing with here is the difference between simple and complex trauma, which is a distinction that's super recent in the understanding of trauma um, clinicians used to thought, and if you think about like the history of the study of trauma, it was always focused on a single sexual assault or a combat situation or Mm -hmm. surviving a terrorist attack or something like that. And so very recently, like in the last couple of years, clinicians realized that there's actually two different kinds of trauma and they, they named them simple versus complex. We've taken this as we do with many things incorrectly to mean that one is better and one is worse. Not at all. The difference clinically, the reason why it's important is because they indicate different treatment protocols. So a simple trauma refers to a singular traumatic event, right? So if you survive a terrorist attack um, or uh, you get mugged or something like that, a single thing, Mm -hmm. um, certain treatments like EMDR and other things are designed for simple traumas, singular traumatic events. And so they work very well. Complex trauma is the opposite, right? So trauma that um, kind of reveals itself over a very long period of time. So if you have neglect or physical abuse or or verbal abuse in your childhood home, um, Mm -hmm. or you live with an alcoholic or something like that, that's trauma that can't be boiled down to a singular event. It, It goes over a period of time. And there's, of course, as there is with any kind of distinction, there's arguments here about like what what does that actually mean? How do we draw that line? So I am someone that argues that multiple deployments, even one deployment would be complex trauma. And certain other people think that that's, you know, more of a simple trauma, but that's not neither here nor there. Okay. And complex trauma would be, um, tends to respond better to different um, interventions than simple trauma. So EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is a modality that uses what we call top-down regulation to re-regulate your brain activity and therefore your central nervous system response. So mm-hmm. you, um, the way an EMDR is, um, is evolving like all of these things. So if I'm describing this, you know, different clinicians practice this in different ways, and some of them are trying to adapt it for complex traumas, but the way that it was designed is that you come into the clinician's office with a particular event in mind, right? So you were, you survived a terrorist attack. And so that's part of 
what you come in with is the memory and the way that that memory is coming up in your present. And you go through that memory with the clinician while they occupy your prefrontal cortex using usually a visual uh, stimulus. So sometimes mm-hmm. they'll just have you, you'd follow their finger. Um, sometimes it's a light, sometimes it's a, a tactile thing. Um, but your the point is that your prefrontal cortex is busy. And so it's given a task and it's therefore online. So when you talk about the upsetting event, your alarm system, your amygdala is going to go off, but your prefrontal cortex is there to sort of mitigate that response. And therefore you can talk about the event without having this full-blown alarm situation. As you can see now knowing the difference between simple and complex, that that would be more effective when you have a single memory to go through and process. Sure. So I saw this live at a conference once, and it was this woman who had gotten into a a near death car accident and she was unable to drive after that. And so they did EMDR with her and she came in and she sat down and they asked her sort of what happened. And she went through the event. She was not making any sense. She was shaking visibly her whole body, which like she was shaking like a leaf. She couldn't explain what happened. It was just all falling apart. And then they did a one single session of EMDR, getting her to explain that without that alarm system going off. And then she came back in and sat down on the chair and they asked the very same question, what happened? And she said, well, it's, it's quite simple. I was going to the grocery store and I went to a four-way stop and blah, blah, blah. And then she's not shaking. She's not having a strong response and she's able to control that narrative in a way that's totally, wow. um, yeah, I know it's wild. They also done that with, um, MDMA, isn't that like the same? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Like MDMA, microphone. the street name is ecstasy. It, it chemically alters the response in your brain. So it shuts down your amygdala, your, your inhibition center, um, which is why it's a fun party drug, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it so they'll give you a dose in, in a, you know, clinical setting yeah. and you'll go through the, it's the same, same idea. You go through the, um, the memory and kind of put it away without having that um, very strong alarm system response. The problem is coming down from the drug can sometimes be its own traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And so you end up in this spiral where you're taking different things to mitigate that. And then, you know, and also there's a whole huge stigma obviously because it is used as a street drug. So that prevents it from getting funded and stuff like that. So EMDR would be great for that. That's what it was designed for. People are adapting it for. And so what you would do if you have complex trauma is go in with a series of memories um, and process them over and over. You know what I mean? Like as you go through this process, we've digested this distinction as we do with many things. We don't understand why the distinction was made clinically. And so when we talk about it on say like Instagram, we just fuck it up. And so- we, we think that simple trauma is less than complex trauma, that the lines get cut in these ways that don't make any sense. It's simply different. Okay. So wait, complex trauma, you would have to go through, you would have to come up with specific multiple memories. Yeah. So you would go in, like, let's say, and, and again, I don't, I'm huh. not an EMDR practitioner. So I would, I would, we would have to ask somebody like exactly how they would do it but from the way that I understand what you would do is say, you would recognize in your adulthood, like I have some attachment stuff and it's because I had neglect at home in oh, my okay. childhood. And so okay. then you would go in and you would, your clinician would say, okay, do you have, can we look at five specific things that pop out in particular memories that continue to come up or things that feel really like 
indicative of what it was like, you know what I mean? And then you would go through those and that's sort of a way to attack the trauma from that perspective. Okay. What else would be recommended for complex trauma? So all the other things that we talk about, right? So like, um, you know, long-term trauma, having a therapist who can work with you, figuring out exactly how it's appearing in your everyday life and attacking those things. Um, And I think the biggest thing is that we need to understand whether it's simple or complex trauma that we're dealing with, there is no such thing as an arrival point at which you are finished. Right. And we need to understand that as a culture because we there's like an underlying thing that I hear at the end of this letter writer's letter, which is that like, what the hell, why is it coming up now? And part of that is because it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. And I totally get that. But part of that is also like shame. I've not, I'm not doing it right. I haven't healed correctly. It's not, um, I've failed or I haven't found my magic cure. There isn't one, there is no arrival point. Of course it comes up again. Yeah these things imprint the way you see and engage with the world. And so that never goes away. Right. That's, you know, it doesn't mean that, that then it, it, that you're broken, right. It's there's, it's that it's, this is a part of your story. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always think of um, it's not a fair comparison, but like the imagery makes me think of, do you remember the movie, a beautiful mind? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I was just thinking about that the other day. Weird. About John Nash and he, um, schizophrenic. I thought it was bipolar with psychosis, but I'll look while you talk. Yeah. I don't remember the exact diagnosis, but you know, suffered a great deal, but you know, that movie I think did a really wonderful job kind of portraying, um, the illness, but what this always makes me, or what this is making me think of is that scene at the end of the movie where he's walking and speaking to the, the it's a little girl, and an adult man mm-hmm. and um, who were parts of his personality. So I guess it was a split personality or it was kind of portrayed as a split personality yeah. at that point. And that movie came out, you know, probably 20 years ago. Right. Yep. And how they kind of walk away together. So, so those parts are, yes, those personalities are part of him. And it seems to be, you know, in, in Hollywood fashion in a way, how he lives with those things. Right. And that's how, that's how I think of um, trauma. It's, it's a, it's a friend that kind of walks with you in a way Mm -hmm. and that you um, it's part of you. Yeah. Therefore it doesn't end. No, totally. Yeah. And it's a critical part of you, right? Like it's it's not just a part to like lament. It's a part of what makes you who you are. Right. It's yeah. So he had um, paranoid schizophrenia and the movie came out in 2001. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. One of, so you asked a minute ago about like interventions for complex trauma. Um, and then what you just explained made me think of this, um, IFS or internal family systems is a modality that's based on exactly what you just said, right? So you take the different parts of yourself and rather than viewing them as these are pieces that I want to get rid of. And these are pieces that I like, you look at them as a family system and you integrate them into a unity so that you can, um, so that you can move on. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think a lot of, I always say that like the goal of trauma healing is not to not feel the, the goal of trauma healing is to integrate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, yeah. So that would be a good um, intervention for complex. There's lots of them, you know, there's not one for either one of them. It's just that they would requ- if you're a clinician, you would need to know this is simple or this is complex because my first like line of thing is going to be this or that, you know what I mean? Is it? 
okay to think of simple versus complex. Like when you were talking about the difference between the two, I thought it's the amount of time that you don't feel safe. And and that simple is like an event, like a car accident or, a you know, where you, you don't feel safe or complex. And certainly in the letter writers situation, that was a long period of time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that's a good way to, to talk about it for sure. And it's also, it it matters when it happens, right? So um, this sounds like this was a situation that was happening for her whole life. So this is now a part of her developmental story, which is different. And again, not better or worse, but different than if you had a relationship in which you felt unsafe as an adult for 20 years, because you developed by that point, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So there's so many different facets that that contribute to what that trauma looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I love, I keep going back to this. So the definition that we that we use that I like that um, I adapted from Robert Stolero is this that trauma is unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. Mm-hmm. And I like the language of unbearability. Because I think you could, maybe you could imagine a trauma where you felt safe and or in control, but that that was part of what was traumatic, right? Is that you were made to feel like you were in control or you were the one that had to provide safety. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Because it sounds like this letter writer is, um, you know, she was made to take care of everything and everyone from the beginning of her life. And so that's she might feel like she could provide safety. And in fact, if she doesn't, it's a life or death situation, you know, but that this part of her life that should have been in control was profoundly out of control. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's um, there, there, there was a phrase that I wrote down that she said, there was nobody to talk to who understood. I was alone, scared and the most knowledgeable still with no answers Mm -hmm. that in a way like says it all. Like there was nobody to talk to who understood you're having this experience that's unbearable in a way that nobody can relate to. Right. And, um, that is profoundly shattering and isolating, you know? Yeah. Because I think in our, we can go through very hard dramatic things, but if we have a network in place that can help us process, that can relate to us and attune to what we're going through this whole thing looks completely different. Right. So in a sense, like that's the wound, not the what happened. Right. Not that the what happened wasn't, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, like there's so, for it to feel like her mother checked out and it sounds like she did check out, you know, for a long time. And, you know, we don't know what the reason was. You know, I think if, if her mother had an Alzheimer's diagnosis, you know, we would be better able, she would be better able to understand it yeah, or a cancer know. diagnosis, but yeah. there was no information. Mm-hmm. There were no answers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you can't find a group to talk to a network because it's, you, you know, you don't know what you're dealing with. Yeah. And to have a parent not behave like a parent is alarming. Yeah on every level, no matter how old you are or what's going on. Yeah. Well, think this is why I love the, like the stuff about um, moral injury, this idea that like when you experience a trauma, sometimes what happens is your sense of right and wrong just gets completely shattered. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an experience where that's so evident because 
you're, there are these, these things that we rely on. The world is supposed to operate a certain way. Your parents are supposed to be capable right. adults who act like parents. And when they're not, that's not just about your relationship with your mom. It's about the way you see the world that right. it, it doesn't, it stops making sense in that way. Right. Which brings you right. to the crisis point and it's further isolating because again, you look around at your, your, you know, peers and nobody else is having that experience. Exactly. And you can't, and you can't, you can't explain it. And I'm sure she tried to explain it and people ask questions and they couldn't understand it because it's not understandable. Mm-hmm. And then that just leads to a whole like level yeah. of frustration where yeah. you stop talking about it. Yeah. You know? And, and I think the, um, I think the, another piece of it is that she's in this place. This is, I think one of the most, why, why even put it that way? This is a terrible thing when you have a piece of knowledge and it's not enough and you're in a position of power such that nobody will listen to you. Right. She's, she has knowledge about her mom. Her mom right. will listen to her. Nobody in the world will listen to her because she's the kid. And, Oh, you know, it's so easy for us to be like, Oh, you're being dramatic or like, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Or your mom's going to be okay. Right. And you're like, you're saying something that you know is true and re- and and that's a way of you reaching out for connection and people are just like oh it's no big deal right because they can't deal with it it's like then you're like that's like being strangled you know right yeah and that's and a lot to feel trapped and powerless and i think like this is okay so this is going to sound unrelated but it but it's related so i did this research study with my um research partner Gary Senecal and we were looking at um what it was a very like open-ended study. And we were looking at what makes veteran reintegration successful and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And we had ideas, but we were trying to make this open because we wanted to just take, you know, see what came up. And we found one of the things that we thought going in, because a lot of research shows this is that a support network has to look like people who know exactly what you've been through. Okay. And so, you know, there's a lot of funding and research and stuff that comes around, um, you know, veterans being put into spaces with other veterans who might understand what their deployment experience was like or something like that. And there's a wide belief that that's the thing that you need. And what we found, much to our surprise, was that that's not actually it. There's an incredible value to being able to have a, a you know, someone who has not experienced what you've experienced resonate with you because it brings you back into the larger world and it stops making you into this thing that into this object in a way who can only be understood by other objects that look that way, you know? Mm. Okay. So people, yeah. So people were reporting that like, you know, cause we were just asking them like, who was the most supportive person and what did they do that was helpful and what did they do that was not. And the stuff that kept coming back is, you know, surprisingly, it was my aunt who of course has never been deployed and has no idea what it's like to be in the military, but she kept saying, man, I don't know what that was like, but I have felt trapped before. And it was the worst thing I've been through or mm-hmm. I, you know, of course I can't understand what that's like to have, you know, to have that experience you just described, but I have felt anxious and, and I, you know, it was hard for me to handle. So you, I think like we need as a culture to understand that resonating doesn't look like what we think it does Right. and providing a relational home does not necessarily involve me having been through exactly what you've been through. It just right. 
I need to be able to be open to hearing what your emotional experience is like and validating that and helping you feel less alone in it, you know? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. It was super surprising. And it's it's more, more about the feelings than the experience. Mm -hmm. And attunement, being able to say, because this is like, how do we, how do we know that someone's listening to us, right? It's like that they are grasping the gravity of what you're explaining and reflecting that back to you. Right. Without, you know, making, because I think in our language, we, we, we stop at, oh, I have no idea what that's like. Right. And then that just, I mean, think about what that's, that just continues to reiterate the same message to that person. Like your experience is really weird and yeah. Right. (laughs) Then they feel othered and not, you know, not that's the opposite of a relational home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You probably need a combination of the two, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's not that the, okay. So there's benefits and and advantages to both kinds, right? So Mm -hmm. the person who doesn't know what you've been through clearly doesn't know what you've been through. And so their amount in which they can resonate with what you experience might be limited. However, the other thing that we found that was surprising is that sometimes people who have been in the same experience are actually more judgmental and minimizing than people who haven't. So they're less likely to attune to you because they're like, dude, I went through that. Not a big deal. Right. Or here's what I did. I just went to these three sessions of yoga and then I was cured. And you're like, uh, it's not working for me. And then you feel more isolated. So you need both. And they have, they both have limitations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you we need tools. It's yeah. part of the tool. Right. Totally. And, and over and over again, I also want to talk about like the, the, this idea about resurfacing and when, um, because this is the question at the, at the end of her letter, right? Like, can it resurface? Why is it resurfacing 10 years later? Um, it can absolutely resurface. And here's the thing that's kind of brilliant and also frustrating about overwhelm and trauma. And I used to say this and people get mad at me because I didn't mean it this way, but it sounds, it can sound damning. <laughs> where like your trauma will simply wait for you. Like you don't need to sit down and plow through it. I see that in clients a lot because we, again, we think that there's an arrival point of healing and we want to get there fast. And so we sit down and we're like, okay, tell me what to do. I want to plow through this. I want to plow through this. I want to plow through this. And we don't need to do that. And your brain will just hold on to it for you until you're ready. Mm -hmm. And I didn't mean that to sound damning, but people were like, at some point, someone was like, you got to stop saying that because it's really scary. (laughs) I think it's kind of cool because it's an in, it's an, it's a built in coping technique that your brain has where it's like, we can't deal with this right now. So we're going to put it back here and we'll deal with it later, you know? Right. Right. And dealing with it is not, is not an, an explosive event, you know, it's not, it's it's not going to take you down dealing with it. Right. Totally. It's going to come up and you're going to recognize it and you're going to feel whatever you need to feel in the moment or for the day. And, you know, yeah. And you're going to keep living your life and doing your things. Right. If you think about your traumatic, if you think about your brain, like a closet and you think about your traumatic memories, like that pile of stuff that you have to like sort through to figure out what needs to go to goodwill <laughs> and what needs to get repaired and what needs to stay like that whole thing. Oh it, God, you don't like, if you're having a super overwhelming week and you have tons of work, you know, that that pile is there and you might forget about it and that's fine. But you, you're going to sit up at one point in the middle of the night and be like, God damn it. I have to get to this pile. You don't actually, it's just going to sit there and wait. And then when you do have time, you'll be like, okay, I have a free Saturday. I'm going to go through this pile. And it's, you know, so part of this is about like trusting yourself to 
do that, you know? Yeah. And I think it's really common for people to get to a point and it sounds like I do, we we don't know a lot about this letter writer's life and and but you know people do commonly get to this place of like relative calm and safety and then the stuff comes up yeah. which doesn't seem to make sense cuz we're like oh you know god damn it I'm finally in this place of like calm and safety but what's happening is that your brain is seeing that as an opportunity oh we've got time and space right you know right yeah right you feel safe now so right we're, we're going to work on some of these feelings or emotions. Right. And that's, you know, again, that's your brain wrecking, doing its job, recognizing that, that it's okay to do that now. Yeah. You know, there, it, it also, she said, you know, can trauma resurface in new ways, even after all the post-traumatic growth I've had, it doesn't negate the growth. When we reframe and understand that trauma healing isn't about an arrival point, we can understand better that like, it's not because it comes back up. That's not, that doesn't reflect on your healing and then make it look like your healing isn't real, you know? Yeah. It's just, oh, here it is again. And she talks about, so the other thing we have to talk about is like, there's a central fear underneath here that she sort of says out loud, but sort of doesn't, which is that she's afraid to become her mom. Yep. And um, that is you know, we, we inherit mannerisms and ways of speaking and we find ourselves falling into patterns that we have been very intentional about not wanting to repeat. Um, and that is the most normal thing because that's, that's our, the, our original relationships in the world in, in life began with these people. And mm-hmm. so the way that we relate to the, to the world is, is, that way. That's our imprinting, you know? Yeah. And so it's normal. And I think like, I, it seems to me, I mean, reflect back on all you've done. You're not your mother, right? She was avoiding all of the things that you have faced and that you faced and dealt with beautifully. Right. And I also think that, you know, we, this comes up a lot when we talk about trauma, because clients will say, okay, now that I understand developmental trauma, I'm terrified of traumatizing my kids. And I think, again, I know we've said this before, but the the point is not to avoid making a mistake. The point is taking ownership of the mistake in a way that your parents didn't. Right. You will have a moment of overwhelm and say the wrong thing. And it might be the same thing that you swore you'd never say because your mom said that and it crushed you. That's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. And so could you circle back and apologize in a way that your mother didn't and couldn't because that's the healing. It's not the not doing it. It's the being able to, to like hold yourself accountable in a different way. Right. You know more. Right. So you can do more. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have the, the baseline experience of your mother. And like you said, with the mannerisms and all the things that we inherit, Mm -hmm. but you also have another level of understanding and healing and awareness. Yeah. And, you know, you're doing all the right things. Yeah, totally. Trust that. Yeah. And I think, you know, get, get into a relationship if you don't have one already, that's a therapeutic relationship with a therapist or a coach who can, who you feel like you can kind of work through that fear with and who can, because you don't have to do that alone. Right. And they could say, you, you know, you, it would be great to be able to meet with that person once a week or every other week and say, you know, I had this thing with my kid and I don't know, because I think when we, our biggest fears, the reason that they're so powerful is because we, we are scared of them. And so rightfully we turn away, but then they become these like big monsters. 
instead of turning to them and saying like, okay, what is this fear about and how can I be vigilant about it? Um, that that's, I think a healthier way or not. A, it's not necessarily how it'll, it, it's just an easier way to deal, deal with it. Right. You know? Right. You can't avoid any of this stuff, you know, no, you're going to have the feelings. You're going to have the emotions. Things are going to come up. Mm-hmm. You're going to have the fears. You're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You can't beat yourself up for all of that. No, that's, that's just what it's like to be human. Right. And it sounds like, again, like there's so much silence and avoidance in her family of origin. Like, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to admit that I'm sick. I'm not going to, you know, all this kind of other stuff. Um, that's, I get that. That's hard to feel like you've extracted that or like exercised that demon, you know? Yeah. But I think the more you circle back, the more you'll see that like what you're doing is the opposite. You know, well, just writing this letter, just right. mm-hmm. asking the questions, mm-hmm. yeah. putting yourself out there like that. I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah. This is definitely a traumatic loss. You know, maybe all, this is always a question I'm asking myself are all losses traumatic. Maybe this is definitely a traumatic loss. So you're dealing with grief and trauma. Yeah. And I, I also think sounds like extraordinarily long periods of stress. Yeah. The other thing, just kind of going back to the brain stuff is that, um, so I think I've said before on the podcast that, um, if your brain was a video game, its goal would be homeostasis, which is equal blood flow and electrical activity across the cortex. And when you have a very, this is another way that simple and complex trauma are different in the brain. When you have an extended period of time where you have your alarm system going off, you have elevated stress hormones in your nervous system, you, your brain simply levels up. And it's like, okay, this is the new normal Mm -hmm. because it has to adapt. Mm -hmm. And so that then changes your experience in the world as an embodied being. It changes your stress level. It changes all of your thresholds for anxiety and things like that. Um, And so that's, that's another thing that makes grief coming back look a lot more intense, I think. Because you think you're going to be in that place again? Yeah, because it's an elevated, you're already at an elevated, your threshold is is higher than most people's. Right. And so you're you're at a you're tapped out already when this thing comes back around. Okay. And so the the critical healing, I think, actually doesn't necessarily have to do with reprocessing trauma. It has to do with lowering your baseline stress level. Yeah. Um wow. and that's just something we're not taught to do and we don't talk about, you know. Right. It's, but it's such a huge thing. And if it, if you don't do that, it will come up in your body because it needs to be healed, you know? Right. So you'll have stress and pain and sickness and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I had a therapist once who was actually a super terrible therapist and tried to convert me to her religion, but she had this one (laughs) piece of thing, which was really helpful. Um, that by the way is like so highly unethical. It makes me nauseous. Um, so if that's happening to you, exit, find a better therapist <laughs> who has the proper boundaries. Um, but she had this one great thing, which was that she, she was like, listen, grief is like, it's like you're climbing a, like a circular mountain. And so you are making progress as you go around and you will hit the same viewpoint every so often because it's a circle, you know, and it's going up and up and up. So you'll have the same vista every like three months of your journey. And that does not mean that you are not making progress. It just means that that's what the mountain looks like. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. I know. And I love that because that seems so, um, I think a lot of the suffering from grief, because we've experienced this, right. Comes not from the feelings themselves or from the reappearance of the grief. It's from our judgment of it. Yeah. Our absolutely into that desire of like, I just don't want to feel this way anymore. Like, okay, of course, but here you are, this is part of the thing, you know? Right. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's, you know, it, it just not to sound like gloom and doom, but it, you know, it doesn't go away. It doesn't, it, it, it bubbles up Yep. and we need to be better about that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's only doom and gloom under the wrong set of like circumstances though, or not circumstances, the wrong set of like beliefs. Right. Because if you look at it as just you know, a part, like, as you were explaining before with John Nash, like, this is just a part of you, you have to befriend this piece of your experience. And then when it exactly. comes around again, it'll feel totally different. Cause you're just like, Oh, okay. Right. Thing, you know? Right. But you can, you can logically know all the, all of those things and still mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the anniversary of dad's death, it was 15 years, you know, this, yeah. this past Christmas. And I, started to go down the rabbit hole, you know, mid December. And I was so frustrated with myself. Yeah. Like it's 15, it's been 15 years. Like, yeah. Can you, why are you still like feeling this way? You know? And it's, that's so, that's so not kind to yourself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's funny. I did. I was thinking this the other day I did that. So, you know, dad died in December, mom died in February. I did that twice. Because in December, I was like, God, like I am sad. I am more sad this year than I've been in lots of years. Like, what the hell is that about? Yeah. And then I processed that and I was like, okay, well, this has been a really hard year for one thing. And two, like, that's okay. It doesn't right. have to make sense. You know, like it's, it just, it is what it is. And then I, so I kind of like processed all that. And then I did the same thing again in February. Yeah. Where I was like, why am I sad? Why am I more sad this year? And I was just like, you, you did this. Like, Two three months ago, like, right, right. have you learned nothing? <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Give yourself a break. It's hard. It is hard. It is hard. I guess we I, maybe we just shouldn't be surprised by the feelings. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, maybe maybe it's a way to um, honor and celebrate yeah. the person that's no longer here. Maybe it's a way to realize what you've learned from them, either the way you emulate them or you, the way you are not like them, you know, it's, um, right. But I, but I certainly understand the tendency. Well, and I think like the other thing is that it's, um, it's both, yeah. right. Like it is both. I, I, I do not, and probably will never be appre- appreciate being, being taken out in the middle of December for what I feel like is absolutely no reason. Cause I like forget that it's coming up. Right. That's always going to be frustrating and that's okay. Those emotions are hard. Yeah. And so that can exist. And then I can also then say like, and this is a gift because it means that you never lose loss. You can always visit that again and honor that person and, and be grateful for those pieces of them that were helpful and made you who you are, even if they were the hard ones, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's um, I think there's a lot there and we are, we are so quick to like, reduce and judge. And it's almost never the thing that's helpful. Right. I keep going back to the idea that, um, it's in the burnout book by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. They talk about emotions are tunnels 
they are meant to be traveled through and you only get exhausted and stuck when you don't keep going. (laughs) That's good. It is good. And we keep, we do that to ourselves by saying like, oh, this emotion is not acceptable or, you know, I, I'm having a hard time and I shouldn't be. That's a very different statement than I'm having a hard time. There's a lot of compassion there, you know? But I picture like, you know, clutching onto the edge of the tunnel, like by your fingertips, like, like, don't suck me in, don't suck me in, don't suck me in. Oh my God. And then, you know, in my own experience, when I've let go and had the good cry on the bathroom floor, you feel like a million times better afterwards. Right. Right. And it didn't change anything. Like it's still, it is what it is, but. Well, what it changed is the gripping, you know? Right. I let go. Yeah. I let go. Yeah, that's, that's totally. And I think there's another piece here about self-compassion, which is that like, when you are, when you grow up in a situation like the letter writer did, you know, there's nobody there um, to comfort you and give you compassion when you are in the hardest moment in your life. Right. And so it would probably be very healing to go back and create that space for yourself intentionally of holding yourself and saying, comforting, compassionate things to yourself. Yeah. Rather like we slip into judgment because I think we think it's more productive. And so we're like, God damn it. I don't have time for this is the, yeah. (laughs) I'm like noticing so much of myself, even (laughs) today being like, you know, I don't have time for this, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's what if you turn to yourself and you said instead, like, oh, this is really tough. And you're dealing with a lot and you've done so well to make a different kind of life for yourself yeah. than you were ever modeled. And it's hard and you're tired. And what, what can I get you? Yeah. You Mother know? yourself. Right. Yeah. I was thinking that this morning, cause I have this ulcer and <laughs> I keep doing things to exacerbate it because I'm a blockhead, but <laughs> that's genetic. I'm so, genetics <laughs> at work. I'm so irritated about it. And I think I'm just realizing now when I'm talking, so I like forget to take the medicine and then I like drink coffee on an empty stomach and I have a headache and I want to take in a leave and I'm pissed about it. And then I'm like, this is a very small thing. Like in the scheme of things, what I thought it was, was something scary and it's not, and that should be comforting. And so I should be like grateful. What uh, This is why I like, I get itchy around gratitude stuff. Cause some of it is shaming. It is. But the truth of it is, is that like, you know, I, I work really hard so that my stomach doesn't hurt (laughs) and it hurts and it's really frustrating. And I, you know, it's annoying to have to think about when to take medicine and what you can eat, what you can't eat and when to drink coffee and not to take the leave. And, you know, it's, that's hard. And that's, that's, yeah, I would be probably a lot better off if I like was a little nicer to myself around that. Yeah. That's a lesson for all of us. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, check out your inner narrative and see how nasty it is to yourself and see if you can correct some of that, or even just like add something to it instead of trying to get rid of the the negative stuff completely, you know? Yeah. Cause I think that's too hard. Yeah. I was, um, I went to this thing on, um, a virtual thing with Anne Lamott wrote a new book called dusk night dawn. And it's about like hope and how to find hope in these terrible times and all that kind of stuff. So she had like a virtual thing the other night and I went and she was talking about, um, she was talking about this. Can I just read this? It's kind of, okay. Um, so this is a Facebook post, but it's about, she said almost the same thing in the, in the lecture. Um, 
she said, one of the chapters in Dusk Night Dawn begins, I have a PhD in morbid reflection. For those of us who grew up with unhappy parents who possibly had tiny, tiny issues with alcoholism, mental illness, unfaithfulness, or rage, morbid reflection becomes one of our comfort zones, along with dread, shame, bad body thoughts, and catastrophic thinking. There is another chapter in the book about how instantly some of us believe that the kitten is dead and not simply hiding in one of the wormholes in the living room that only cats can find. I'm having buttons made up that say the kitten is not dead. The kitten is somewhere in the living room. (laughs) These remain my default responses in times of stress because they are capital H home. Another chapter begins, dread was my governess growing up. She kept me from running out into the street or swimming in the deep end before I could tread water. But for the last, oh, say 60 years, these have not been major concerns. And shame. Oh, maybe the homiest comfort zone of all. Um, Oh, sorry. 30 years ago, my Jesuit friend, Tom Weston, perfectly captured what so many of us are are up against when he told me the five rules of being an American grown-up. Number one, you must not have anything wrong with you or different about you. Number two, if you do, you need to correct this ASAP. Number three, if you really try but just can't change this, simply pretend that you have. Pretend you're just fine now in every possible way. Number four, if you can't even fake this, please don't show up as it's very painful for the rest of us. Number five, if you're going to insist on the right to show up, you should at least have the decency to be ashamed. Wow. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. No. And then she says, my answer is usually that replace has not been proven to be doable. She's talking about like replacing these toxic comfort zones with comfier ones. Dilute, distract, befriend, and muffle are more realistic. Um, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, and then she says that her husband has this practice where he, um, helps people talk directly to the critical voice that keep, you know, that keeps trying to make us small and afraid. And he has the clients thank it for having kept them alive and then gently suggest that it won't be needed for this anymore. Then he asks if it would go into semi-retirement and take the position of occasional ethical consultant. (laughs) It could go hang out in the library in an easy chair and read until needed for brief ethical consultations. <laughs> the bad voice is usually pleased to be given such a prestigious role. While meanwhile, we can move into renewed curiosity about the world in nature, on the couch with a book, on the phone with a friend. We can tend to ourselves with responses that might actually comfort, like a grilled cheese, a movie that makes us laugh, a good cry, and always, always a lovely cup of tea. I love that. I know. I love her. Um, but I, I like that this is such a, it's a more gentle way of correction, right. Where you don't have to throw away all the things that have gotten you where you are now. You just ask them to sort of move over here because we're going to invite these new things in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just don't have the starring role anymore. You're, you're just, yeah. Right. I love that. Yeah, me too. And I also like the idea that part of healing is not directly addressing this stuff, but inviting in calm and safe and happy experiences for yourself in these really tiny, simple ways, you know? Yeah. Sometimes have to. It looks like doing a lot of work and sometimes it looks like painting your nails while you watch you've got mail for the 985th time. Right. Cause that feels good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's healing too. It is. Okay. Do you have, speaking of tiny little joys, do you have a tiny little joy? I do. I do. Um, you're going to laugh. Okay. So, my whole life, my whole 50 years that I've been on this planet, I have been poo-pooing the idea of wool socks and that I hate that. (laughs) 
I hate them. I don't understand why people wear them. I think my head's going to blow off if I put them on. Like, I don't get it. And I have had many people, yourself included, close to me in my life who have always worn wool socks, big, thick wool socks. So pretty recently on a trip to Costco, I decided I was going to pick up a pack of wool socks for myself and just like give it a whirl. And now they are the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> we're, we're at that moment in the pandemic where you're actually like <laughs> reevaluating your stance on. I, I have reevaluated my stance on wool socks. <laughs> they are fabulous. I can't believe that I have denied myself this mm-hmm. pleasure for so long. <laughs> and I apologize to you and to anyone else in my life that I uh, made fun of your wool sock. Um, which love. just by the way, like let's let's break down what that looks like. <laughs> it'll be like, oh, I have these great socks. At least it'll be like, what? <laughs> right. How can you wear those things? That's ridiculous. I could never do that. My head would explode. What Brent, the hell has, <laughs> Brent has like 10 pairs of those LLB and like wool rag socks, and he wears them year round. And I've been yelling at him for years over that, you know. Every single day. They're amazing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I take it back. It's now my tiny little joy. And I think like the most joyful part is that I like the idea that I can change and reevaluate and accept new things. <laughs> Life is exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. <laughs> oh, I have so many recommendations. Okay. Have you got, have you done the darn tough ones yet? No, I'm only have the Costco, like six pack. Okay. So the darn tough ones, I think I have to look this up to make sure I'm not lying. It's like a lifetime guarantee. Really? Yeah. I think they're made in Vermont and you get the pair of socks. And if they like have a hole in them, you can return them and get a new pair. Yeah. But okay. I used to work for Timberland and (laughs) like lifetime guarantee of a pair of boots that you wear every single day. Yeah. Okay. It's not 85 years. It's not a human lifetime. (laughs) Lifetime of the boot. So is that the case with the lifetime of the socks? Like, I don't know. Okay. But <laughs> well, anyhow, um, I'd be happy to support a Vermont brand. They are like darn tough. They they live up to their name. And I actually put on cotton socks the other day and I was like, these are horrible. Like my feet got sweaty and they didn't dry and it was a bad scene. So I have like seen the light and changed my ways. I have like three different styles of them based on there's so many aspects, the heat, like the, the, the temperature outside <laughs> the size in your shoe. So it depends on what you're doing and for how long, like it's the whole thing. And then there's like patterns and like, <laughs> I know it's exciting. <laughs> that is, if you had asked me like, before you said that, what is the last thing that you think I will have like. <laughs> No. Done a 180 on. <laughs> yeah. You know what else I did a 180 on is cauliflower. I used to hate it. Now I eat it like every day. Yeah. It's like it's magical because you can make it taste like anything. I know. I <laughs> know I eat way too much of it, but I hated it for a long time. Okay. Sorry. What's yours? Um, okay. So mine is uh, is funny. I mine are always gonna be like, or not always gonna be. But there, it, I feel like mine last week was skin related. I don't know. Um, but so I woke up and I have, I'm having some allergies or something. So I had a headache and my eyes were puffy and that's annoying. It's it's annoying, especially because my I'm smiley. And so like. It's a good I, thing that you're smiley. But like, well, my eyes are puffy. Like I can't see because they get so small that I'm, you know, it's anyway. 
<laughs> so I, I love face masks and all things like that. I think it's like the ultimate. I love doing that stuff at the end of the day, like put on a face mask or like a new thing to like, you know, it's just a, it's a good way of self-care, but it's also so calming. And this morning I was like, okay, I got to do something about my eyes. They're so puffy. And so I found, I had these little things I got at Sephora, They're these little eye masks Oh, that you just put underneath your eye and it's like cucumber and I don't know what caffeine or something like that. And so I was like sitting at my computer, paying bills, drinking coffee on an empty stomach. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I had these little, these little things on my eyes, which maybe helped, maybe didn't, I don't really know, but, um, it was such a like new, this is so small, but it was, I was like, what a cool thing to do this in the morning. <laughs> like, while I'm like paying bills and like doing this task, that's kind of tedious. And, uh, I can do my like nighttime things in the day. And that's exciting. <laughs> Cute. It's such a, like, I don't know why it feels like such a, like, I, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you sound like dad, which is a good thing. <laughs> he would say something like that. I never thought I could do the nighttime things during the day. <laughs> like to start your day that way, as well as end it that way. What a cool right. thing. I love that. The little de-puffing eye masks or whatever. Well, you look great. So they worked. Oh, thank you. I can see when I smile. So that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> it worked a little bit. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So thank you, Letter Writer, for writing in. I hope this was helpful and validating. Keep going. You're doing great. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noel Cordeaux, Lumia Coach Training. And it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.